Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. Uh, Amber McKinney is out this week. I am your host, Alex Lawson. With me, as always, my co-hosts, Dean Seal. As always. Yeah, as always. Uh, this is the first <laughs> time this 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 arrangement, uh, uh, this th- this particular combination has done this. But we're but we're we're diving in, and also Haley Knoth. Hi, Haley. Hello. I was gonna say, <laughs> guys. Um, we're finally I to- back, guys. I told you before we started. I'm 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 frankly a little bit nervous because I've been pretty nonverbal for the last uh, several weeks, speaking only to a human who cannot understand what I'm saying or what is happening to him. Um, <laughs> For so people who don't know, Alex up. has been in a coma, so <laughs> great to finally have him back. Uh, it, is, it is great to be back. I was on paternity leave, people don't know. Um, greatly enjoyed spending time with my son, but now I'm with my work sons and daughters, I think, in a way. So <laughs> that's exciting too. Wow. I, I did have a couple of notes um, on the podcast before. I think you guys, in all seriousness, you guys did a great job. Uh, greatly enjoyed the shows. I couldn't help but notice, though, that they are that they were significantly shorter uh, without without me participating, like ten minutes shorter at a at a time. And this feels like a veiled criticism at me for being long winded <laughs> or unnecessarily verbose or something. What do you guys have to say about that? Well, we we let you back on, so clearly this was a test run, um, you know, and, and we'll <laughs> test you out for a little bit longer, see if we like oh. the shorter format. But okay, yeah. all right. Is there like shadow editing of me going on, Haley? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't guarantee that everything you're going to say here today is going to end up on the show. Oh, gosh. <laughs> we'll yeah, do our see, best. Yeah, see, Kelly is is uh, recording today. He was kind of hinting at that earlier as well. Yeah, it was, all, it was all clean rips earlier. We literally never had to retake. It was just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, wow. Yeah, one and done. Okay, well, that's quite a lot of pressure to live up to. <laughs> but I think, I think we are game for the task. We have a great show this week, um, as I'm sure everybody knows. Uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the uh, Biden administration's Supreme Court nominee, was testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee this week. Um, And we had, uh, of course, we had to bring on Jimmy Hoover, co-host of the term, uh, Supreme Court aficionado, to walk us through it. There's a lot of, you know, if you were even casually paying attention to this, a lot of partisan sniping, a lot of grandstanding. But we talked with Jimmy um, and tried to focus about what we learned about Judge Jackson's uh, judicial philosophy and like the the sort of mindset she brings to the bench. Um, it's a good talk, as always. But um, uh, I know we have some news to get to first. Yeah, it was great to. It's always great to have Jimmy come on and break things down. Uh, but we did have some other interesting news out of the nation's capital this week that wasn't from the confirmation hearings. Mm-hmm. So last Friday, a DC Superior Court judge dismissed an antitrust lawsuit that was filed against Amazon by the district's very own Attorney General Carl Racine. Now, the lawsuit claims that Amazon has been abusing its dominance in the e-commerce space by using a pricing policy that discourages third-party sellers on its platform from selling the products at a cheaper web price on other websites, including mm-hmm. sometimes that seller's very own personal website. But after reviewing the case, a D.C. judge said that he isn't seeing any law violations and effectively told the attorney general, that's capitalism, baby. I mean, yeah, I'm sure we can all agree here that as hard as we try, perhaps to avoid Amazon from time to time and support these sellers <laughs> in other ways, I mean, Amazon does have the lowest prices in many instances. So is DC's attorney general arguing that's illegal? 
So the district's lawsuit from last spring is alleging that Amazon uses this, what's called a fair pricing policy, um, which actually penalizes sellers for setting prices on Amazon that are, quote, significantly higher than prices on other sites or marketplaces. Now, the suit's also claiming that Amazon uses anti-competitive agreements with suppliers for its retail business, which is where it sells products directly to customers. And all of this, according to D.C.'s attorney general, has reduced innovation among online retail marketplaces and resulted in higher overall prices for consumers. Uh, It may not surprise you to find out that Amazon has been accused of this before. In fact, Haley, you pretty recently wrote about how Amazon was not able to get a dismiss a uh, proposed antitrust class action in Seattle. That was over very similar claims. I did. I did. I was going to say this This really rings a bell here, um, but it looks like we've got a pretty different outcome in this case. Yeah. So the D.C. judge reviewing the AG's complaint said that at the end of the day, all he could find were conclusory allegations that all of the that this you know fair pricing policy and Amazon's contracts with suppliers uh, it was only conclusory allegations that this was actually causing some higher prices to come down to the customers at the end of the day. Now, for the policy in particular, he said that, in his view, sellers could still set prices as they saw fit in the marketplace. This policy is just barring uh, sellers from setting prices that are, like I said, significantly higher on Amazon than elsewhere. But it never actually dictates some kind of overall price floor. And on top of that, and this is kind of the big part, he he noted that the sellers in this situation aren't being forced into contracting with Amazon, as far as he could tell. In fact, the suit itself acknowledges that there are other marketplaces that actually charge lower fees than Amazon does, yet sellers are still going to Amazon anyway. Here's a quote directly from the judge. That's how the market works. Nobody is forcing them to do business through Amazon. The fact that Amazon's competitors charge lower fees and commissions underscores the fact that there's a marketplace behavior involved here, and it contradicts the claim that Amazon's policies are creating a floor for products sold through other retail channels. Yeah, I mean, if you're arguing an antitrust case, which is, you know, at its heart about distortions in the market, anti-competitive distortions, and the judge leads with, that's how the market works, not looking good for your case. Right. There's even a point in the hearing at which the judge just asked um, one of the DC's, um, the DC Attorney General's um, counsel to just define what a monopoly was and kind of how monopolization oh fit into all of this. <laughs> oh, wow. Boy. Yeah. Now, so that quote, though, about um, this being a marketplace behavior is a really key distinction in this case, as opposed to, say, that consumer case that's in Seattle. So the D.C. Attorney General's office contends that the judge in this case is using the wrong standard for dismissal. They think that they pretty much only need to allege that there's an agreement at play here that's unlawful. But the D.C. judge is saying that the dismissal is warranted if the allegedly anti-competitive conduct could be explained as, quote, lawful, unchoreographed free market behavior. Now, that clearly is how he you know, sees the effect of these policies as kind of being a free market effect. Um, and the D.C. attorney general is instead just kind of throwing out conclusions and saying this is anti-competitive without ever getting into anything specific about the contracts or the agreements. Right. Now, it's a pretty big loss, obviously, for uh, the D.C. Attorney General. Uh, I have to imagine there's some kind of appeal in store. But I also have to imagine that we're going to see more antitrust uh, litigation coming against Amazon in the future, given their just kind of general dominance. And we'll have to see if this decision kind of plays in or impacts those future claims. Let's turn now to an interesting controversy um, that is on the federal bench. So switching gears quite a bit. Um, A senior judge has floated the notion that law school students who protest um, and specifically disrupt panel discussions should be disqualified from potential clerkships. 
Um, and what's uh, most entertaining, I suppose, as an outsider about this is he did so in a mass email that was sent to every single federal judge. <laughs> All right. So the, <laughs> the first question is here, who set up the listserv with every federal judge? Yeah, I mean, right. <laughs> was it, is, there, is there like an administrator or was it like one one like single federal judge who was like, oh, I'm getting us all on an email chain. We got They're, this. Yeah, they, they 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 use it to like make sick burns about whoever's on the uh, judiciary committee at that yeah. time. They're having a, it's that 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 threat is gangbusters this week, obviously. <laughs> they, probably, they probably started at the beginning of the pandemic. That's when they set it up. So they wanted to all stay connected, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Uh, yeah, those are those are interesting. Those are interesting questions. But let's let's get let's let's stay sort of on point here. Um obviously, you know, Kids do be interrupting speakers on campus. Let's not let's not uh, let's not mince words. There it happens a lot. Uh, you know, free expression, all of that. But let's stay focused on the issues. Who is this judge, and how did this sort of edict or you know hot take that kids who do this shouldn't uh, be given clerkships? How did that come about? It is Senior U.S. Circuit Judge Lawrence Silberman, yeah. and he is a Ronald Reagan appointee who sits on the D.C. Circuit. And so what happened was he appeared to be responding to a controversial event hosted earlier this month by the Yale Federalist Society at the law school there. Um, and so the March 10th event reportedly centered around civil rights litigation. And among the speakers on the panel was the General Counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom. And that group says that it's dedicated to religious freedom um, however, it's also designated as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Hmm. So predictably, it drew quite a crowd uh, of student protesters. And following the event, more than 400 students signed an open letter expressing outrage at the general counsel's appearance, um, given what they called ADF's, quote, vicious attacks on LGBTQ people. Gotcha. So, I mean, was Judge Silverman just kind of angry that these students were protesting in the first place? Was it really about the, the content they were protesting against? Well, so what seemed to be his main issue was that some of the protesters engaged in a contentious back and forth with the panel's moderator, who kind of kept citing Yale's freedom of speech policies. Mm -hmm. um, and the moderator claimed that the students were disrupting the event and they were eventually asked to leave. Um, but so here's what Judge Silverman had to say in the email. The latest events at Yale Law School in which students attempted to shout down speakers participating in a panel discussion on free speech prompt me to suggest that students who are identified as those willing to disrupt any such panel discussion should be noted. All federal judges, and all federal judges are presumably committed to free speech, should carefully consider whether any student so identified should be disqualified from potential clerkships. Hmm. Uh, appreciate the careful wording there. Should carefully <laughs> consider whether hmm. you want uh, these kinds of agitators um, right. disqualified be, from your very, very prestigious clerkships. Should be noted, even in itself, has this very ominous tone. Yeah. The way he sort of says it. We'll just, yeah, we'll keep an eye on those people. Also, students, students uh, so identified, sort of like, how are we, <laughs> yeah. what, is the, what is the surveillance uh, uh, at issue here? This is kind of like a, I, I'll be honest, Haley, this is like kind of a hornet's nest of a story in terms of like, we're going to kind of skirt around like, you know, whether 
students, you know, expressing opposition to a speaker, you know, is itself a form of free expression and like, yeah, who's entitled to what? And are you entitled to a, to a fair shot at a clerkship in response and all that? Um, but we had some really good reporting on this, including kind of um, a, a little bit of a TikTok on the response this got in this apparently piping hot uh, email listserv. Yes. Yeah. So another federal judge told Law 360 that the message spurred dozens of responses. Um, mm-hmm. And some of them were, you know, other judges saying, hey, that's a great idea. I fully agree. And then a lot of other people just saying, please stop sending mass emails. <laughs> um, which, you know, politics aside, I think we can all back that take. I actually have a contra take on that. I appreciate the chaos uh, that that reply alls lead to. It's like, it's very humorous to me. And I think like that the headaches caused by it, which is just like, oh, I have a new inbox notification, new inbox notification, very minimal. I say let chaos reign. Uh, that's just my very <laughs> controversial posi- position on this. They certainly, I can see that. Yeah, they certainly create great stories for us to write about. That's later. what I'm saying. So, you yeah, like, you know. the, the, that's why I generally support it, even if it's like personally annoying momentarily. Anyway, um, the other part of this is that on this issue of free speech, free expression, Judge Silberman has some priors. Is that right? Yes, he does indeed. So last year, actually, he urged the Supreme Court to consider overturning Times v. Sullivan, um, which is a landmark First Amendment ruling. Yeah. And his argument was that newspapers and, quote, big tech exhibited a heavy bias toward Democrats. Um, And he said at the time that while the First Amendment guarantees a free press, a biased press can distort the marketplace. And he also claimed that the media has proven its willingness to distort. It is therefore a mistake to stand by, quote, unjustified legal rules that serve only to enhance the press's power. Gotcha. So, so at the end of the day, none of this is necessarily surprising. We just, uh, we just usually don't yeah. see it uh, unless You're it goes right. out to every federal judge. Gotcha. Exactly. And somebody's about to blab it. Clearly. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, there's one key player in here that we have not um, talked about, and I'm sure that they don't really want to weigh in. But has Yale said anything about all of this? They have. So a Yale spokesperson just confirmed the course of events that day um, <laughs> and said, you know, the standard, the law school follows the university's free speech policy and procedures. Um, And here's what the spokesperson had to say in a statement. As soon as the moderator read the university's policy for the first time, the students exited the event and it went forward. (laughs) Members of the administration are nonetheless in serious conversation with our students about our policies, expectations, and norms. And meanwhile, the Yale students signed an open letter that described the protest as peaceful. And they said the armed police officers were called into the building and they're kind of demanding a change to any policy that requires such actions. So definitely a lot of uh, a lot of different things going on here. And I highly doubt we will get clarity on any of these (laughs) issues anytime soon, considering how sweeping and ongoing they all are but it'll it'll be interesting to see if this pops back up again for uh judge silberman or any or anyone else on the thread it. really i yeah, mean that's uh, yeah, you know, like like thread, you know really. yeah so i mean let's let, let's definitely keep an eye on that if anybody on that thread uh wants to update us to any other newsworthy comments from federal judges yeah please uh my dms are open for uh screenshots of that <laughs> just pass them right along <laughs> thanks a lot ailey 
Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson was on Capitol Hill this week, making her bid to become the first black woman seated on the Supreme Court and facing the kind of partisan theatrics that have become standard for high court confirmations in recent years. But the hearings also allowed Jackson to speak at length about her judicial philosophy and the mindset she brings to the bench, at times clashing with her billing as a deeply progressive jurist. Here to catch us up on the highlights of Jackson's testimony and her path forward in the Senate is Law 360 Supreme Court reporter and co-host of our sister podcast, The Term, Jimmy Hoover. Welcome back to the show, Jimmy. Thanks for having me, Alex. Great to have you, as always, especially on a busy week such as this. Um, We'll start here. I think by now, uh, this has been a very high-profile news story, obviously. I think Jackson's profile is pretty well-known. She's a Harvard grad. She clerked for Stephen Breyer. She sits on the D.C. circuit now. She is the first black woman to be nominated to this position. But I was interested in the stuff you wrote this week about her judicial philosophy and her kind of speaking at length about that and about her um, her approach on the bench. Um, what did we learn in that regard? Yeah, so it's her fourth time before the Senate Judiciary Committee. She was up for a seat on the Sentencing Commission, then the Trial Court, then the you know U.S. Circuit Court. But this was really the first time we got that deep insight into you know her overarching judicial philosophy, and she and she explained that you know unlike maybe some judges who come to the bench from an academic background. Her philosophy has developed over the course of years of actually sitting on the bench. Basically, the way she describes it is as an application of her judicial methodology. So she really sees the judge's role as a very limited one, one that's constrained mm-hmm. by the text of the law, that's constrained by you know the original public meaning of the Constitution, um, and she is constantly emphasizing you know being neutral, being impartial throughout. So I think what you're hearing at least what I was hearing, was kind of overtures maybe to some of the more skeptical Republican members of the Senate Judiciary Committee that I'm not a flaming liberal activist judge. And in fact, you could almost hear in her some of her answers and descriptions of her judicial philosophy, maybe answers that you might hear from someone coming from like the Federalist Society, for example. Of course, mm-hmm. she, she didn't use those labels of originalists or textualists as such, but um, certainly, I got the impression that she was presenting herself as a very moderate, middle-of-the-road judge who um, shirked the kind of living constitutionalism that is often mm-hmm. ascribed to uh, judges on the left. So for anyone who maybe wasn't watching live or wasn't watching the many clips that have come out since, uh, what kind of reception did she get from the committee? How did all that play, especially with um, the Republicans who, like I said, were kind of geared up for some theatrics? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, you can almost imagine that, you know, in, in, you know, many years ago that those kind of answers would have been things that the Republican members of the committee were delighted to hear. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And that she would kind of sail through committee if th- that's the approach that she that's not what happened over her more than get 20, out of here. No way. <laughs> shockingly. Um, over the course of her, you know, more than twenty hours in the witness chair, which I haven't sat for twenty hours of questioning before, but it doesn't sound like a very pleasant experience. <laughs> um, she was hammered. She was grilled by the various Republicans on the committee, not necessarily about her judicial philosophy, what kind of judge she will be on the Supreme Court or would be if confirmed, but rather isolated and specific elements of her lengthy public record both on the bench and before she got to the bench. So one of the items that Republicans were really hammering away at, for instance, 
had to do with her representation as a federal public defender of detainees in Guantanamo Bay. Yeah. Specifically, I don't know if you recall this, but John Cornyn had uh, accused her of calling um, former President Bush and former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld war criminals in a legal filing. It turns out that that was actually just included um, as you know one of several counts in a federal habeas petition in order to preserve mm-hmm. those arguments going forward. Um, but that was one area of attack. Um, I, I think you probably heard, like most people who've watched the news this week, that the issue of her sentences in you know, sex crimes cases involving minors was a huge deal that came up over and over again. Please clear that up because that's the kind of thing that like grabs headlines. People are like, oh, this, she's soft on child porn uh, offenders or things like like what was what is the actual kind of like legal discussion happening there? Well, it depends on who's doing the discussing, right? So <laughs> well, if you sure, look to right, Senator yeah. Cruz, he's got his poster and he's got these this chart of where he's contrasting the sentences in around 10 cases that Judge Jackson had where the prosecutors and the guidelines had called for a specific amount of uh, prison time and she had departed downward from those guidelines. And he's making this you know, claim, this argument that she is you know, wildly lenient and soft on this particularly egregious crime. Now, obviously, experts have weighed in on this issue and you know, surveyed the landscape, and particularly in the district of the, the, the mm-hmm. D.C. district federal court yeah. where she was a trial judge and heard these cases. Her sentences were well within the median range, and that's just because the guidelines for these types of crimes haven't been updated in many years, and people universally or widely at least see them as out of date, um, particularly harsh. And so oftentimes when federal judges sentence in these cases, they are departing downwards. And so in that sense, she's not necessarily um, you know, so much of an outlier there. And in fact, mm-hmm. just yesterday, uh, she was responding to kind of repeated pressing questions from Josh Hawley about why in several of her cases she wasn't imposing sentencing enhancements for um, defendants who were uh, charged with possessing larger amounts of this illicit material. And yeah. her answer was kind of revealing. She basically says that the guidelines are so outdated that they were um, written at a time when these kind, this kind of crime was perpetrated through the mail um, and that mm-hmm. you know, people who would send 150 images as opposed to five images through the mail should be considered you know, a more egregious crime, whereas she contrasts that today in the, the modern nature of the crime taking place on the internet where with one click, you may be immediately at the top of the sentencing range, which she says mm-hmm. is obviously the point of sentencing is to differentiate people who commit these crimes. So that's kind of the background unpack okay. of that specific line of questioning. But there were others as well where it, there was essentially a theme you know, throughout yeah. the hearings from the Republicans that trying to paint her as particularly soft on crime, despite, I should say, her coming from, you know, a, a, like a, a law enforcement family background. You know, her brother mm-hmm. was a, uh, a a Baltimore police officer. Two of her uncles served in the police department as well. Her, her brother later joined the military. And so she, in her testimony, she basically says that, you know, she has the utmost respect for law enforcement and is trying to push mm-hmm. back on this kind of what she sees as a caricature of her record. She took a sort of really like technical approach, uh, what we were talking about earlier and like talking about her philosophy, the work she's done. 
but you 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 kind of alluded to it there. It was the, the hearings were not without um, some emotional appeals as well. You know, talking about her her background and and, and her upbringing. Can you speak um, a little bit more about that? We we kind of started to get into it there, but uh, tell us more. Well, I mean, the, the the hearings were at times like really tense. You know, there was mm-hmm. a, I think it was yesterday when um, Senator Cruz, in the course of his questioning about some of these child pornography cases was shouting at chairman dick durbin um yes because dick durbin was trying to move the proceedings along after cruz had exhausted his his time um but then there were as you say emotional heartstring moments as well you know yesterday evening and this is in her final hours in the in the witness stand you know withstanding all of these you know all of this brunt questioning She's sitting there well into the evening, um, you know, past working hours for yeah. for most people. Um, uh, and and uh, Senator Cory Booker is basically assures her that he's not going to be asking any questions, but just speaking about the historic nature of this nomination and telling her that she, you know, is worthy of this this moment in you know her life and in the in the life of the country. And it's it's a moment that kind of pierces the tension in the room a little bit and she starts to mm-hmm. actually visibly get emotional and, and dabs her eye with with a tissue so there were moments like that um even later on uh during the questioning of senator alex padilla of california who basically asked judge jackson you know what what she would tell young people maybe young people like judge jackson when she, she was starting out and she was kind of discouraged from going to harvard you know what she would tell them mm-hmm. if they potentially doubt themselves and she tells this like really remarkable story about being a freshman at Harvard you know uh, feeling out of place as as a black woman as as a graduate of a public high school and an Ivy League school where everybody went to these prep schools and she's walking through campus one evening and she comes across you know she crosses paths with a stranger a black woman who just says one word to her persevere and she says that's what i would tell young people and it's this really poignant moment like stretching late into you know her final minutes of testifying so there were certainly you know highs lows it, it was it kind of ran the spectrum so let's talk about kind of what's in the middle here because i mean kind of republican grandstanding aside and the congratulatory nature of all this aside usually these hearings are about talking about real issues that the high court might actually be facing you know abortion gun rights things like that did we get into some of that substantive questioning I would say that the senators asked these types of substantive questioning, but in as we've seen in so many recent confirmation battles, you don't really get that substantive of answers from the nominees themselves. They have become extremely good at saying nothing while, you know, sounding like they're saying something. And so in the case of Judge Jackson, she like uh Justice Barrett before her and, and Justice Kavanaugh uh, before her. Uh, she spoke to the issues of abortion and couched the la- her language in terms of it being settled precedent of the court. I yeah. don't think anyone expected her to come out and say she disagreed with the court's decisions in Roe versus Wade or anything like that, but she she recognized it as a settled precedent as Barrett did before her and Kavanaugh did as well. And she she did the same for the, the Second Amendment and the individual right to bear arms in that case. Um, and so she wasn't really willing to kind of speak at length about particular issues. There was actually kind of one, I would say, substantive moment where it's during Senator Ted Cruz's time questioning her, and he's referencing a case that's set to be argued next term 
Um, it's a case yeah. challenging the uh, you know the affirmative action admissions process at Harvard, and um, you know Katanji Jackson obviously went to to Harvard undergrad, Harvard Law School, and for the last six years or so, she sat on the board of overseers for Harvard, which has to do with you know governance of the school system itself. And so Cruz asks her if she plans to participate in this case next term, and she says. No, she's going to to recuse herself. So that was kind of newsworthy and um, yeah, more yeah. substance th- than I was maybe expecting in that case. Uh, let's wrap up with this, Jimmy. I, you know, she's um, the the Senate is controlled by the Democrats. She is a Democratic nominee. I don't think there's much of a question about whether she gets confirmed. But you've done this a couple of times now over the last several years, and I just I would love to hear your thoughts about the new normal that has emerged in the last ten years or so where SCOTUS nominees that are kind of on paper extremely qualified and kind of answer the questions the right way, nevertheless, the process gets more partisan, more contentious. We kind of saw that play out uh, this week. Do you expect that to play out when it gets to a full vote? I do. And that's just because, you know, obviously she was confirmed to the D.C. Circuit with on a, on a pretty thin margin, only winning the uh, yes votes of three Republican senators, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Susan Collins of Maine, and incidentally, um, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. Now, Lindsey Graham was among the more aggressive questioners during the confirmation hearings, and obviously we, we know that he has been burned by the fact, or at least he says he's been burned by the fact that you know, there was a quote-unquote you know, campaign to destroy the candidate of his choice, J. Michelle Child, so he's harboring some resentment over that. So it's possible she could be confirmed to the Supreme Court on a thinner margin than she was elevated to the D.C. Circuit. Maybe there's a there's a potential flip vote in there. I don't see any of the Republicans that voted against her confirmation to the D.C. Circuit, you know, deciding that they're mm-hmm. now going to vote for her uh, to be elevated to a life tenure position on the highest court in the country. Yeah. Um, so. This just speaks to, like you say, the fact that these confirmation proceedings have gotten so politically divisive. You know, just the the person who she's going to be replacing, Stephen Breyer, was confirmed by, you know, like a a way larger margin. I think earning something around like 90 votes or something like that in the Senate. And so, you know, maybe Judge Jackson, had she been going through the Senate, you know, 20, 25, 30 years ago, she may have had those kinds of huge margins like Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg did, but those days are long gone. All right, uh, Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us uh, and breaking this down. I would also encourage everybody to listen to Jimmy's own podcast, The Term. I know you guys talked to James Arkin, who was also tracking uh, the nomination or the uh, confirmation process this week. Great stuff there and great stuff here as always. Uh, Thanks again for joining us, Jimmy. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Dean. I'd like to end our show with something offbeat. Um, I have a soft spot in my heart for when judges are allowed to air grievances to the lawyers who argue before them. And this is sort of a sort of a niche issue, um, but uh, I think I think our listeners will appreciate it. So here's a scenario, uh, a thought exercise. Enter the mind palace of a patent attorney who has just lost a heartbreaker of a case at the federal circuit. You're upset. Your clients are pissed. You're 
scrambling for answers. The only bullet you have left to fire is hoping that you can get a rehearing uh, either from the panel that just heard your case or the whole court on banc. And so it's become almost automatic that if you lose, you're going to file for a rehearing um, either on banc or by the panel. But there are at least a few federal circuit judges who would advise you to please not do that because <laughs> they are sick of it. Um, and that is the thrust of the story that Ryan Davis wrote this week. Um, he wrote up some pretty interesting comments from three judges at a virtual panel last week who basically stopped, if you read between the lines, basically stopped just short of saying that the patent bar in particular is just flooding them with needless rehearing requests. Um, <laughs> and I thought that that was an interesting thing to talk about this week. What do you guys think? That is. It's interesting that it's specifically patent attorneys who are causing them this strife. Like, I yeah. wonder what it is about that area that everyone's like, we got to immediately have this reheard. Well, they're very meticulous people, generally. <laughs> uh, uh, patent attorneys. I mean, most attorneys are, but especially patent attorneys. Um, right. So uh, there's just some really good quotes here from a couple of the judges on this panel. This is from Judge Richard Lynn. Again, these are all federal circuit uh, judges. This is what he said. This is on the issue of rehearings. Quote, it's just truly amazing to see. I mean, day in and day out, I would say there's hardly a day that goes by where there isn't a petition for rehearing or rehearing for en banc filed. And it takes a tremendous amount of time away from the important work of the court that needs the judge's attention. Uh, he went on to say, what we see day in and day out is just a do-over. It's the losing side's brief all over again, and the chances of success are slim to none. Don't you hate it when uh, when the law is just really getting in the way of you knocking through <laughs> cases faster? I mean, I don't know. That's like <laughs> it's the biggest takeaway I have for this. If it's dumb, then, you know, it's because the system made it dumb. But you can't just start. I, I don't know. I think that's just such yeah. a weird complaint to hear from judges. No, it's a good point. And they did say like they they were careful to say that, like, I mean, it's it's like a relatively inexpensive and procedural step in the court in the like as a small step you take in the course of this huge, often right. very complicated and expensive litigation. It's like, why not? I'm going to check one more box, file one more brief, roll the dice, see what happens. Right. Uh, another judge on this panel, Kara Fernandez Stoll, echoed those sentiments. She said, when I first joined the court, I was just blown away. I thought that maybe I could spend all my time just reading petitions for rehearing. That's how many we have. I couldn't imagine how I was going to also start learning new cases. And she said sort of as a, as a piece of advice, it would really behoove the bar as well as the court to be more selective in when they're filed because then we're going to be more likely to be able to identify those that are really meritorious. <laughs> um, so I think your, your comment, Dean, is like, I mean, this, you definitely have a point, but I think what they're trying to say is like, if it literally just becomes automatic, it does take time to like weed through things that aren't just, okay, rubber stamp my, my losing brief. Maybe I'll yeah. catch him on a better day. Maybe I'll catch a more sympathetic ear. You know what I'm saying? That's fair. I just, uh, I have a hard time believing that they can throw it on the bar to make an adjustment like this when like the bar is probably representing some deep pocket clients that are oh, saying, do everything yeah. you have to do in an appeal. And I yes. mean, this is, yeah, like you said, it's really more programmatic at this point for, for counsel to pursue these options. And I don't think they're going to go back to their clients and say, no, you know, I don't think the judges are, um, they're just not loving rehearings these days. Yeah, you know? right. No, of course not. <laughs> yeah, no, no, day in and day out, they just <laughs> don't want to look at this. I'm sorry. I know that I'm billing you $795 an hour for this, but. Yeah, uh, Judge Raymond Chen was also on the panel. He said, uh, when, I, when I see these over and over again, quote, it cannot help but dull the senses of the reader. Uh, which Ooh. really made me laugh because 
I mean, the, the the thing is like you have to remember that it's not just some not just some judicial machine that you submit your briefs to. It's it's human beings who have to consider them, and uh, you know you have to consider it within that context. Um, they were constructive in there. They didn't just say get off my lawn with these rehearing petitions. They were <laughs> like good. they were sort of saying. Let's maybe focus on cases where there might be a dissent on a key issue um, or where they thought there was sort of very clear error that you can identify in what seemed like kind of a slap in the face to uh, corporate litigants. They actually said you should maybe be more like the government, which litigates most non-patent. Yeah, well, because the government is involved in almost every sort of non-patent case that goes before the federal circuit. It deals with reviewing federal actions and things like that. And they say, you know, the, the, the government... They take a lot of losses and they rarely file for uh, rehearing petitions unless they really <laughs> believe in it. So kind of an extra, you know, screw you uh, to these to these corporations be like, hey, take some cues from your friends uh, in in D.C. there. Yeah, your, your friends who are representing the deep pocketed government that's always trying to <laughs> burn more expenses on the yes. court. Uh, wow. Well, I guess it has been a big week for grumpy judges. That's that's what I'm taking away from. All yes. This. Wow. What a way to what a way to uh, uh, kind of center us back here. I think that's a good place uh, to leave off. Um, greatly enjoyed this show with you guys. Uh, thank you so much uh, for being with me today, Dean. Yeah. Super glad you're back, Alex. And also Haley. Yeah, we're we're so happy to have you back. And I did a little math before the show. Your your leave was just slightly shorter than the Major League Baseball lockout. So. Wow! Holy coincidence! <laughs> I don't yeah, think so. A lot of a lot of correlation there. We're, we we will be implementing uh, universal DH on this podcast very soon. Uh, looking very forward to that. Yeah, good uh, to have you back, you Podcast Papa. Yeah, welcome back, Dad. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. We have so many people to thank for helping make Pro Se possible, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and this week's guest, Jimmy Hoover. Contributing reporters this week were Matt Perlman, Justin Wise, and Ryan Davis. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform so that other people can find us. If you want to read more about anything we talked about today, just head to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week.